Trivium and Scripture is the title of your handout. This will be a biblical philosophy of education and a brief review of what we looked at last time. And I'm going to seek for some level of participation from those who were here last time. So what is the trivium? Anybody remember or can tell us from memory what the trivium is? Logic, grammar, and rhetoric. Right. Grammar is the first phase, logic the second phase, and rhetoric is the third phase. And trivium means the three ways or the three phases. So grammar is where you learn all the facts... Logic is where you learn the definition of things and how those facts fit together. And then rhetoric is where you learn to present and persuade. So those are the three phases of the classical model of education. And it's also very roughly parallel to how the human mind develops. Early childhood, they memorize a whole linguistic system starting from no language to by the age of three being able to speak a language. That's astounding. From no knowledge of language to a full, or pretty full, spoken vocabulary, rules of grammar, etc. So there's a lot of memorization of facts in the early phase of the human mind. Then there's the why. What, what is the reason behind all these facts? How does all this fit together? What's the inherent logic of those facts? That's the second phase. And then when someone grows old enough, they want to present their ideas to others. They want their peers to understand them. They want to present and to persuade. And that is the rhetoric phase. So just like the mind of man, so the historic method of education up until the 19th century, late 19th century in America, it followed that same model. Let's start with heavy fact memorization, then move into the logic of those facts, then into the persuasion and the rhetoric. And then the classical liberal education included the trivium as the foundation, and then the quadrivium was built on top. Those four added to to the first three became the full classical liberal education. And those four skills were arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Looking at God's design in terms of numbers, arithmetic, geometry, spatial dimensions, music, sound, and astronomy, the planets. So seeing all these things as building on the basic facts, grammar, logic, rhetoric, then moving out into these more advanced sciences. And then from there, which was usually finished about the time of the bachelor's degree, which for them would have been maybe 18 years old. They would have, you know, 16 to 18, they'd have a bachelor's. And then by the time some of them were early 20s, they'd have their master's or their doctoral degree. So if you were a student of theology, you'd have a classical liberal education, and then you'd go beyond that into your specifics of theology. If you were a student of law, you'd have all those same basics, and then you'd move into the legal sphere. And if you were studying medicine, the same idea. So if you had a doctor or a pastor, if you had a a mathematician or any kind of professional scientist, They would all have the same knowledge until they finished with the classical liberal education. So they all had that common foundation, which is why you can see the Renaissance man, he can take the trivia model and the classical liberal education, and then he can learn this skill. And then he can take that same model, grammar, logic, rhetoric, and he can repeat it with this skill. 
and then he can do it with this skill, and then he can do it with this skill, because he has the basic tools of learning in the trivium, and then he's already applied it in the classical liberal, the four extras, and then he's applied it in his specific discipline, and then he can continue applying it. So you'll find theologians who are mathematicians, who are accountants, who are goldsmiths, who are painters. Like All that happened because they could take this and repeat it. Now, so we talked about the trivium, we talked about the classical liberal education, and then the practical skills, law, medicine, theology, etc. And then we talked about how that relates to scripture. And the thing that we talked about last time was how grace perfects nature. This is extremely important. And we talked about how in the early church there were heretics who denied this. And what we call those in the history books is Gnostics. Because they said that grace, when it comes in the gospel, takes all the ordinances and institutions of nature and it sets them aside. And it's an error based off of the notion that when Christ died on the cross, he abolished the justice of God, or he somehow uh, diminished the justice of God, as opposed to the Christian message, which is that when Jesus died on the cross and saved us from our sins, that was actually in fulfillment of God's justice. That's the biblical teaching. That God is just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So his justice is not compromised by the forgiveness of sins. His justice is fulfilled by the work of the Son of God on our behalf, in our place. So that there's no sin that goes unpunished according to God's justice. It's either punished in the sinner or it's punished in the Savior. But God's justice must be maintained. So that early church heretics said, no, when Jesus died on the cross, God got rid of his law. And so if you read the New Testament, you find when the the apostles Peter or Paul or John or Jude, when they describe, or James, when they describe those that are um, heretics, they'll usually talk about them in a couple of ways. One is the doctrine of salvation. And the other is the doctrine of obedience. And the heretics, they would say, well, nature teaches you thou shalt not commit adultery. So if grace abolishes nature, what does that mean for a Christian? I can commit adultery. I can lead a licentious life. I can have lust in my eyes. I can be covetous. And so you see Peter in 2 Peter 3 and 2, he's talking about the false teachers or Jude. He says they turn the grace of God into what? Anybody remember? lasciviousness because Jesus died on the cross and God saves us by his grace therefore I can live an unclean life I don't have to obey God's moral law I don't have to keep his commandments those all go away grace abolishes nature because the law represents how God made us naturally it represents God's natural rights over us the ten commandments represent what's written on our hearts Paul says the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts and it excuses or accuses them. That's the law of the Ten Commandments. And he describes it as the royal law in the book of James. God tells us about these things. In any case, the biblical teaching is that grace perfects nature. That God saving us by his grace doesn't mean we can go on and sin now. And sin being a transgression of God's law. You can't be lawless just because Jesus died for your sins. Rather... We're saved by God's grace through faith, and that faith is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, 
lest any man should boast. But then what does Paul say? That God predestinated us to walk in good works. We're not saved by good works, we're saved unto good works. So the grace of the gospel reestablishes God's right over us. And so faith, as Paul says, doesn't abolish the law, it establishes it. It puts it on a proper footing. And you see this even in the Ten Commandments, as we looked at. When God gave the Ten Commandments, he starts off with the preface. What does the preface say about God? Right. Very good. So if you turn the law into a, a position of bondage, that means you're misunderstanding it. Because he said, I am the Lord thy God. That's the promise he made to Abraham of salvation. I will be God to thee and to thy seed. And then he says, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So I'm your liberator. I'm your redeemer. I'm your savior. And then he gives the Ten Commandments. So the gospel precedes the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments. The redemption goes before obedience. So there's an important connection there. Grace perfects nature. It reestablishes God's rights over us. It doesn't abolish them. And so we talked about, for instance, in Genesis 1, God made man in his image, male and female. By the way, the heretics who said that grace abolishes nature, they also didn't believe in the distinction of male and female. So they had women pastors, for example, because they said, well, see... The natural order has male and female. Grace abolishes nature. So there's no difference between a male and a female. That's what they're saying today, isn't it? Is that little Baphomet with half male, half female features? The little Satanist goat head thing? You guys ever seen that? That's that spirit of transgenderism. Let's violate the order of nature. I wave the rainbow fish, they say, because grace abolishes nature. So I can live licentiously because I'm a Christian. Okay, that is the heresy of the mainline churches. The Southern Baptists are falling into it. The Presbyterians already have. Methodists fell into it a long time ago. Episcopals, yeah, they're gone. But the whole idea is that these heretics will teach this. But God said he created man in his image. He created them male and female. And then in Ephesians 4, we looked at how God says, we're not to live as the Gentiles in the vanity of their mind, their understanding darkened, alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, showing us that God's restoration of us by the grace of the gospel brings us out of an almost brutish state of irrationality and lawlessness and brings us into our right minds, like the demoniac that Jesus healed. He was put in his right mind and he was clothed and he was listening to Jesus. Instead of running around cutting himself and in chains and bursting out of the chains, he's now in his right mind. The same could be said of Nebuchadnezzar. When he came to his right mind, then he glorified God because finally his reason was restored. And then we saw how in Ephesians 4, he talks about uncleanness and greediness being a Gentile manner of living, but you have not so learned Christ, verse 20. He talks about the truth in Jesus, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, that we're renewed in the spirit of our mind and we're to recognize that we're created in righteousness and true holiness. Then we saw the ninth commandment, not lying, in verse 25. He talked about the sixth commandment in verse 26. He talked about the eighth commandment in verse 28. And he talked about the third and the ninth commandments in verse 29. So he's showing Christians 
that when you're renewed in the image of God, when you have the gospel come to you, it doesn't abolish the knowledge that God naturally put into us. It doesn't abolish the law that God wrote on our hearts. It actually restores us in that image of God. It restores us to knowledge and truth. And then we saw from Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. And then we looked at the, uh, the, that the order of nature includes the skill of thinking. Colossians 3.9 and 10, lie not one to another. Again, the ninth commandment. Seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So what does the, the image of God include? What does the natural order include? Knowledge. As well as righteousness and holiness from Ephesians 4, it also includes the rational capacity. And then we saw in John 1 that every man coming into the world is enlightened by Christ himself. We saw that in verse 9, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus Christ is the light. Every man as he comes into the world created in the image of God is enlightened by Christ himself. We're formed after the image specifically of Christ, the logos, the rationality, the wisdom of God. And then by contrast, in 2 Peter chapter 2, these false teachers, he says in verse 12, well, let's go through, he talks about despising governments, that's the fifth commandment, they violate that. They have the lust of uncleanness, that's the seventh commandment, they violate that. They're presumptuous and self-willed. That's a violation of the whole first commandment, which says to have no other gods. People who are presumptuous and self-willed, who's their God? Not themselves, that's right. So that's a violation of the first commandment. They speak evil of dignities, the fifth commandment. And then he talks about them as brute beasts. And the word brute is alaga, which means without reason, without the capacity to think. So the heretics and the false teachers They destroy and corrupt the image of God. The gospel restores the image of God. And so this is extremely important because this is a foundation for education. What is the goal of education? Well, it's the restoration of the image of God. That's obvious. It's bringing people. In fact, exodus in Greek, ekados, means the way out. Education means to lead someone out. So what are we doing in education? We're leading them out, just like God brought his people out of Egypt. Now, what did God do as soon as he got his people out of Egypt and he destroyed their adversaries? What do you find him doing? Moral. What's that? He gave them the covenant. He gave them the Ten Commandments. And he said, this is the way, walk in it. Here's the pathway I want you to walk in. So education is a moral task. It's a restoration of the image of God. It's a restoration of the covenant of God. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's why when Paul says, when he talks to fathers in Ephesians 6, what does he say to them? Don't provoke your children. Don't provoke your children to wrath. What's the other side? Uh, Raise them up in the nurture. Right. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So the task of... Where am I leading them? What is education? To lead them out. What am I leading them out of? The bonds of death and sin and Satan and hell. That's what I'm leading them out of. And so Proverbs talks a lot about the rod and reproof. The word and correction. Those two things going together. They lead the child out of that bondage of sin and death. All right. Now, 
Uh, page two, the bottom of your handout there, human nature roughly develops in parallel with the trivium structure, general stages, grammar stage, and we talked about this, infancy through the logic phase, characterized by easy and desirable absorption of facts, then the logic phase, questions like why and how, then the rhetoric stage, how after the logic is learned of those facts, then presenting to others. Now, page three of your handout, God-inspired scripture generally in parallel with the trivium structure. And my contention is that the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, provide us with all the basic facts of the Bible. They give us everything from creation to the fall, to the Redeemer, to the law, to the covenant, to the promises. So all that is summed up in the five books of Moses. And it, it doesn't necessarily always offer us a ton of explanation. And so um, Exodus gives us all those basic facts of redemption, Genesis of creation, Leviticus of God's holiness and worship, numbers of the, the people themselves as they get ready to go into the land. Deuteronomy recapitulates the law of God. And then in the prophets, page four of your handout, we have what I would call the logic phase. Whereas Moses gives you all the facts, for example, you might find a law in Moses that respects the eating of swine's flesh right next to a prohibition of a moral duty like committing adultery. And you ask yourself, well, here it says, you know, I'm not supposed to eat shellfish. And here it says I'm not supposed to commit adultery. And they seem to be on the same level, right? Because they're right next to each other. What's the, dig- what's the difference? They seem to be the same. But the prophets actually give you the logic of the law. What is the difference between this burnt sacrifice that God commanded me and the duty of not murdering? Thou shalt not kill. Are are they the same in, in, in value? No, they're not actually. And you find this, for example, in Jeremiah where he says that God did not command them concerning burnt sacrifice when he brought them up out of Egypt. But he commanded them this thing, obey my voice. Okay, so he's saying the most important thing is that you listen and obey to the things I say. Burnt sacrifice, I didn't say anything about that. Well, did he? Yes, it's a, it's a figure of speech by which you say what is less important, what is more important. It's like if you had to compare the two, I don't really care if you offer me a burnt sacrifice. What I care about is do you obey my commandments? So when they came in Isaiah 1, he talks about when you come in my courts and you offer your sacrifices on the new moon and you burn your incense in the temple, I can't stand that, God says. I'm sick of it. Your incense is an abomination. Take it away from me. Why? Anybody remember what he says? The reason why he hates their new moon? He said they had blood on their hands. Well, what's that? That's what commandment? The sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Right? So you violate the moral law, but you're very careful to keep the, the Sabbath and the new moon. You're very careful to offer the right incense. You're here in my courts in Jerusalem, but I don't want you there, God says. Why? Because you're murderers, and your prayers are an abomination to me. So you can go through all the external acts of worship. In other words, what is the logic of the law of Moses? We have all the facts there in Moses. What? What is the precise relationship between the ceremonies that I'm to act out in worship and the Ten Commandments? Well, it's obvious. 
The Ten Commandments are extremely important. They are the royal law. Everything else is measured in terms of the moral law, that, that royal law. That's supreme and universal and binds everyone at all times in every spiritual condition. It's just something God said he wants you to do. And out of reverence for him, you should do it at that time. Out of reverence for him, we should not do it at this time. But still, it's a matter of his will. It's not a matter of God's nature that you have to offer this sacrifice at this time and burn this kind of stuff. You know, he can, he can change his mind on that kind of stuff. Can he change his mind on thou shalt not kill? Of course not. Because that reflects his justice, his natural attribute of holiness and justice and truth. As far as man can reflect that nature of God as a creature, he's to be like him, and therefore he's not to unjustly take any life. Is there a time to kill? Yes, but that's not what he's talking about. When he says thou shalt not kill, he's talking about the unjust taking of a life. Not talking about self-defense, not talking about lawful war, not talking about the magistrate bearing the sword. Paul says that's the, the ordinance of God. You know, he's not condemning civil government, for example, or lawful self-defense or war. But in any case, the prophets take the facts of the law and they start applying those. What is the inner logic? Why is it this way? What is the most important part? And in the various books of the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, we start seeing that there are several things unfolding. There's the priority of certain commandments over others to show us the logic of the law itself. And there's the development of all the prophetic themes that are embedded in Moses. Moses has a prophet, Moses has a priest, and Moses has a lawgiver. Okay, and those, those tell us something about Christ, actually. Prophet, priest, and king. The Messiah, the anointed of God. Priests get anointed, prophets get anointed, kings eventually get anointed. And as we see these figures lived out before us, they tell us things about the gospel. So the facts of the law are given flesh and blood characters who live them out as types of Christ, shadows of Christ yet to come. So God is both teaching the law and he's teaching the gospel throughout the whole prophetic scheme, all the books of the prophets. The Psalms are a specifically pointed portrayal of both of those points. They're bringing out in song form and in devotional form all the truth of the Old and the New Testament. The Psalms, um, I think Martin Luther called them the Bible within the Bible. The Bible is the summary of all that we need to know for faith and life. It is what we need to know for faith and life. And then the Psalter or the Psalms is a little Bible inside of it. Can you read about the book of Genesis in the Psalms? Yes. How about Exodus? How about Leviticus? Numbers? Deuteronomy? Joshua? Judges? Ruth? The whole thing is laid out before you. The, the whole expanse. And then all the way to the end of the world is covered in the book of Psalms. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the destruction of his enemies, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his manhood, his Godhead, his obedience to his father, offering himself as a burnt offering. All that is covered in the Psalms. So it's like a little Bible inside of the Bible. And in fact, that's why all the, all the churches that were planted here in America of the Protestant tradition, what did they sing when they got here? The Psalms. First book published in New England was a Psalter for singing the Psalms. Why? Because it's a Bible within the Bible. It's a summary of the whole Bible. It gives you everything you need to know. It's like a mirror to look into your soul. So again, 
it's giving you the facts of the law and everything up to David's day and the, the psalmist's days. And then it's looking prospectively ahead. It's kind of encompassing the whole thing. But again, giving us the logic of the law. All right, then the apostles. My contention is, and I believe this is roughly accurate there on page six of your handout. I believe that the apostles represent the rhetoric phase. So we've learned the facts. We've learned the logic of those facts. And now God gets into presentation, persuasion, preach the gospel to what? One nation? All creation. That's right. Make disciples of all the nations of the earth. And how shall they hear except someone preach? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Right? That's Romans 10, the golden chain of the means of grace. You have to have a, a, an authority to send a minister. He can't send himself. And you can't ordain yourself. You can't send yourself. Somebody has to send you. And so there's the chain of authority, the government of the church, and there's the chain of preaching, which is the means by which people hear the gospel, know the gospel, and believe it. So again, and we see this especially with the coming of Christ. Mark gets into it right at the beginning, doesn't he? Gospel preaching right away. He calls people to repentance through John the Baptist and then through Jesus himself. And so there's an immediate presentation orientation. What's the book of Acts about? Same thing. The presentation of the gospel, the rhetoric phase of scripture. Are they saying anything different than the logic phase? No. Are they saying anything different from the grammar phase? No. In fact, one of the points of the apostles and of the preaching in Acts and of Jesus' public ministry is, you'll think that some of the things we're saying are, are different from Moses or the prophets, but are they? No. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, people have always understood Jesus is teaching a different ethic from Moses. See, here he's, he teaches, turn the other cheek, Moses taught you to take revenge. At the beginning of that sermon, Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he shows precepts of the moral law as they've been corrupted by their teachers and as they're properly understood. As they should have been understood when Moses gave them, in other words. He's not saying I'm setting aside the law of Moses. He's saying I haven't come to abolish the law of Moses. I've come to tell you what it actually means so that you can have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees' righteousness, so that you can make it into the kingdom of God. Because if you're wicked and disobedient, you go to hell. You're not saved by your works, you're saved unto good works. So if you're not doing good works, you're not saved. That's kind of the point, in other words. So in a, as, as the presentation is made, it's not like in the, in the rhetoric phase, it's not like you're abolishing the logic phase or the grammar phase. No, you're coming to a higher degree of knowledge of the facts that were portrayed and the logic that was given. You're coming to a greater degree of presentation and clarity. The fathers saw all the promises, Hebrews 11 tells us, like off in the horizon. Okay, They saw the outline of the gospel. They saw the types and the shadows. They believed in Jesus Christ and they were justified by faith alone apart from works. That's clear from when Cornelius is converted and Peter has to argue with the Jews, he tells them, we expect to be justified by God's grace in Christ, just as they were. And the context is he's talking about the fathers in the Old Testament. They're justified in the exact same way. Why? 
Because God is a just God. He can't just forget about your sins and say, oh, well, you offer the right animal, so I'm going to forget about your sins. No. He needs a sufficient sacrifice that can take away your sin, and there's nothing but the blood of Christ that can take away sin. So for them to have been saved, and the apostles make that point. We're not teaching anything different than Moses. We're not teaching anything different than David. We're not teaching anything different than Isaiah. So you read, for example, the book of Romans. What do you find? All kinds of quotations from the Old Testament. Every major point the apostle wants to make, whether it's the depravity of man and his universal sinfulness in chapter 3, or if he wants to prove that we're justified by faith in Christ alone, where does he go? Abraham, David, the law, and the prophets. And when he talks about the gospel being established, he says we're justified without law as witnessed by the law and the prophets. And that's why he brings them out. The law of Moses, the prophets, they all teach the same doctrine, Paul says, as I'm teaching you now. So this is the rhetoric phase where God, in his great mercy, as man's mind develops, he's going to give a revelation that develops in the same way. And what's really intriguing is that there on page seven in your notes, and I'll just conclude with this part, and then we'll look at advantages next time. Um, when God gives a picture in the New Testament of the Old Testament, he uses the idea of a child going to grammar school. It's really intriguing. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, the Romans had a a practice where... If they had a natural born child, they would adopt him. And we think of adoption as like, wait a second, adoption is they're not from your family and you're kind of engrafting them in. You're choosing them. That's the idea of an option is a choice. An odd is toward. You make a choice toward your family. But for the Romans, as a child was under tutors and governors, they were kind of like a servant, like non-full status, non-heir. But when a young child came to age, they had what they called the toga of manhood. And they would put that toga on him in a special presentation where they would adopt him. They would place him as a son in the household instead of a servant. Because he had moved into the status of a man. And while he was young, this boy would be in a position of learning his grammar. Learning his logic. Learning his rhetoric. And once he had finished the course... Then he was given the toga of manhood and he could transact business like any Roman citizen could. So the idea of adoption as the Bible uses it is helping us to grasp that coming of age. And Paul's doing this not just for the personal experience of a believer. Here he's kind of looking at the forest. What was God doing in the Old Testament? Well, he was giving us the grammar phase. Then he was giving us the logic phase. And now he has us transacting business in that sense coming to coming of age being adopted as sons no longer like 
Yeah, you're still an heir, but you're treated more like a slave because you're under your grammar phase and your logic phase. You're in that minority. You not come to your majority. And here, Paul, I think, as I, my theory is that the trivium method is how God revealed in the Bible. And I believe this passage spells that out. That there is this development of minority into majority. And then... Um, this being portrayed in the specifics of adoption in the Roman world. All right, God willing, we'll look at educational advantages next time and then resources uh, by which you can learn more about this kind of thing or the specifics of these things. But any questions? I know we've gone over quite a bit of detail uh, in this lesson, did a little bit of review and then into some new information. Does anybody have any questions about anything we looked at or any uh, Thoughts you had? Just one. On the, so the apostles being the ones that uh, I think it's implemented or whatever, like use the rhetoric phase the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there any any point that you could see that any of the prophets used the rhetoric? Oh yeah, well? yeah, absolutely. Okay. And the main, and that's actually true. When you have a child, it's not like they're airtight categories of grammar, logic, rhetoric that never overlap. It's kind of like how seasons change. You have a few, we have a few fall days in summer. We have a few summer days in spring. We even have some spring days in winter sometimes. So there are occasions where things, there's the general theme and then there's the specifics, the granular detail. And I would say certainly granular detail, Isaiah 53 Some people call Isaiah the fifth gospel because you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you have this book in the Old Testament that gives you such graphic detail about the coming of John the Baptist in chapter 40, the crucifixion of Christ in chapter 53, the universal reign of Christ, and even in chapter 19, but also in 65, you have these massive gospel themes in the prophets. And Psalms, the same thing. You have real flashes of crucifixion and resurrection and universal reign all in Psalm 22. So certainly there are, it's not like it's airtight categories, but generally speaking, I would say it follows that grammar, logic, rhetoric as the Bible develops in God's providence. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions? Okay, let's close our time together in prayer.